let's turn to First John and chapter five. First John chapter five. As you turn there, um, uh, allow me just say one or two quick words. I was out last week. Um, I was in Nigeria and was uh, thoroughly encouraged when I uh, met a number of uh, young people there with the African Christian University uh, T-shirts, and they were very excited about the SCU. Um, and I really mean very excited. I did carry a shirt which had the SCU um, logo on it as well, but it just so happened that it was so shriveled, I couldn't wear it out at the uh, conference site where we were. But it was a real blessing for me to see the enthusiasm that, that was there. And I really felt that I should come back here and just remind us, brethren, about the fact that we, we have begun a university that uh, Africa is excited about it, and we ought to be as well. I'm mindful of the fact that we are right now advertising for students, and I know that in the current group of students that we have, we, we only have one student from our own circles, and all the others have come out from elsewhere, including from outside Zambia. And I'd like to begin to see that change slowly so that we have more and more of our own young people that we have seen come to Christ, that we have seen grow up among us, and consequently they already have quite a lot of the basics in their hearts and their lives, beginning to have the, the topping of what the SCU is meant to produce. I realize that when anything is new, we tend to be a little hesitant, but I want to assure you, we have begun um, the, the African Christian University. It's taken off, and there is nothing in this world except the second coming of Christ that will uh, stop this from, uh, from happening. Uh, I further went to the Czech Republic. It was the same thing. You can imagine in Europe, I was being asked, about the African Christian University and how it is doing. So let's be excited. The, the Lord is doing something here. Uh, we are indeed uh, in the midst of um, a great movement of his spirit. There are a number of requests that continue to come from there. Let's continue to really pray because ultimately it is the Lord uh, who is at work. And one of the things that I enjoy about being away is that I find new things. And uh, I found a new pulpit. I was saying to the deacons that uh, I think I need to go away for a longer period. Maybe I might find a new church building. <laughs> so thank you to the, uh, the benefactors who have uh, provided a new pulpit. I hope there will be a new anointing this morning. First John and chapter 5. We will begin reading from the first verse, although we are centering our thoughts on the sixth verse. So we'll read verse 1 up to verse 12. <clears throat> first John and chapter 5. 
everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, brethren, we have before us an ongoing series that we have been going through, a series that has helped us to appreciate what assurance of salvation really is. And we have noted that this is crucial for us because if you do not know where you are going, you are not likely to be an enthusiastic witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not likely to do that. But when you do know that Jesus has saved you from sin, and consequently changed your destination from hell to heaven, well, that's the kind of good news you want the whole world to know. And so you become an unstoppable evangelist. You will pour your everything into Christian service. But we've also noted the fact <clears throat> that the importance of assurance lies in this, that there are too many counterfeits of the Christian faith within the context of Christianity itself, that it is possible and it is highly possible for you to be sitting there thinking you are a Christian, thinking you are going to heaven, only to wake up on the other side of uh, the, the grave and hear God saying to you, get away from me, 
I never knew you. You are a worker of iniquity. And how sad it would be that you had all the opportunities, you had the Bible in front of you, and you simply took it for granted. Perhaps because you were baptized or you were welcomed into a church, as we've done with our brother Nathan here, that you begin to just take it for granted that all those people cannot be wrong. I must be a child of God. So a book such as this is important because we then bear our hearts open as it were, as this book searches us and we're asking ourselves the question, is this true of me? And if it's not, before we die, we plead with Christ that he might truly save us. In the last number of weeks, in fact months, if not up to about a year, we had been considering especially the words that had to do with love in chapter 4, the necessity of love by all of us if we are to truly say we are children of God. If we do not love, then we are not God's children. And it was with that that John went into what is now set apart as chapter 5, and he's basically arguing for the fact that although the world militates against the Christian faith, and although some individuals abandon the Christian faith, those who are true believers, those who believe in the Son of God, will be victorious. They will overcome. And that's what we saw in verse 4 and verse 5 last time. They will indeed overcome. Well, today, as we begin looking at verse 6 downwards, we, we must admit that we are now in the most difficult part of the whole of First John. It's not the easiest. Verse 6 down to verse 12. It's the kind of passage which, as an expository preacher, a consecutive expository preacher, the moment you get to it, your own heart goes, oh, no. Not because you don't have your own opinion, but it's because the pulpit is not a place for your own opinion. The pulpit is a place where you are declaring, thus says the Lord. This is what the Bible really says. And clearly, you don't want to do that in passages that tend to be very tricky. In fact, some of you will already have noted that um, as I was reading, part of some of your verses sort of disappeared from, from the Bible. And yet, I was reading what is the Bible in front of me. Let's at least be very clear about one thing. Let's be clear about that. And it is this. What is John talking about in verse 6 down to verse 12? What is he talking about? And one easy way in which we do this, those who are with me in the Langham Preaching Seminars will know this, is to ask yourself what word is being repeated the most in this passage. And when you recognize what that word is, clearly it gives you some idea 
about the passage itself. The word that is repeated the most is the word testimony or testify or witness. I'm sure depending on your version, you will discover that over and over and over again, this word is repeated. For instance, in verse 6, where we are today, we find these words halfway through verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. In verse 7, for there are three that testify. Verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God. We find the same in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in him. And then towards the end of verse 10, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And finally, in verse 11, and this is the testimony. So whatever other conclusions we might come away with, it's very clear that this passage of scripture is talking about this witness, this testimony, this testifying concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, we are in a book that's dealing with the whole issue of assurance of salvation. And John seems to be saying that with respect to believing in Jesus Christ, believing in him as the Son of God, we are not left with our own personal conclusions. We are not simply looking at something and saying, well, perhaps this Perhaps he might be the son of God. Perhaps this might be true about Jesus. No, no. There is enough testimony concerning this Jesus that you can be assured you have believed the truth. Now, why is John saying that? Well, it's because of what he had just said in the previous section. Look at what it says in verse 5. Verse 5. Oh, I'll begin from verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, we believe. And in believing, this conviction that we have, we are able to go forward into this world despite all its philosophies, its lies, its teachings, and its enmity against what we stand for. We still continue to go against the wind and finally we are the victors. And then he speaks about this faith in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes, and here is the content, that Jesus is the Son of God? That's what we believe. Is that a mere philosophy? 
Should we be speaking in terms of perhaps, perhaps, perhaps? And therefore, beginning with verse 6, going downwards, up to verse 12, John is saying, no, we have abundant testimony. We've got abundant witness so that we don't need to think that for any possible reason, we are individuals that are deceived. God himself, he will be arguing in a few minutes, God himself is a powerful witness concerning this same Jesus. In fact, not to believe is to be saying that God is a liar. It is to make your hell really hot. So that's what this passage is about. And whatever... Your Bible might be saying and, and uh, all the verses that might be appearing and disappearing and, and so on. L let's keep what this passage is all about primarily before our eyes. And it will help us to cross the difficult torrential waters or torrential rains. Very well then, as we begin to look at this passage, what is it teaching us? Our eternal salvation hinges on our trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything hangs on Jesus and who he is. That's what makes us victors. That's what makes us triumphant. That's what enables us to continue in our faith in this life, that's what will make us survive the final judgment. That's what's going to bring us into heaven itself. It's Jesus, his person, and his work. We've noted already that that's the way we concluded verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then John says, this is he. Oh, this is the one who came by water and blood. And he repeats, Jesus Christ. Now, we've already seen that the whole passage is about witnesses. And we'll soon be seeing in verse uh, 6, the second part, about the Holy Spirit also testifying, speaking over this matter. But Let's remember, it's not so much what are they testifying about, rather who are they testifying about. The Christian faith is about a person. It's about somebody who came. He visited planet Earth once upon a time. It is he who came by water and blood. That's what it is all about. And I want to emphasize this at the beginning before we get into details. That sadly, too many people who profess to be Christians, when you ask them about their salvation, tend to speak about everything else except I need no other argument, I need no other plea, 
It is enough that Jesus dies. Jesus. That's enough for me. Sadly, too many individuals, when you ask them the question, what is it that makes you think you're a Christian today, will tell you about their Christian upbringing, that they were born in a Christian family, they will speak in terms of their moral upbringing, that they've never been involved in the, the major sins, especially sexual immorality that is rife in their day and age. They will speak in terms of the fact that they are members of a church. They've been baptized properly. And by properly, they probably mean some recognized reverend or bishop or pastor or apostle or, or father Whatever the titles they might have, they've, they've gone through those waters, maybe as babies, maybe in their adulthood, but they are certainly now in the role of a Christian church. And then they will add, they are committed to the life of the church. They give financially and so on. Have you noticed what's missing? Or better still, have you noticed who is missing? In everything that has been said, Jesus, he's not been mentioned not even once. And often when you bring that to light and you say to the individual, excuse me, but have you noticed that you haven't mentioned Jesus in all this? It's almost like an embarrassing moment where they quickly say, oh, oh yes, of course, yeah. Uh, I also accept Jesus Christ as my personal. No, 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 no. Salvation begins and ends with him who came into this world at a particular point in history. Jesus, the son of and when he is not the major point in your testimony of salvation, most likely you've never been saved. There's a song that we used to sing, I think we still sing it every so often, but not as popularly as it used to be once upon a time. And it speaks about, oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day, day I'll never forget. After I had wandered, in darkness away, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling. He made all the darkness depart. Jesus, my Savior, I met. So let me ask you. As we delve into this passage, when you think about your own salvation, when you think about the day you will stand before Almighty God, if you are asked the question even today, why should you be allowed into heaven? What answer would you give? Because whatever you say is what you have put your faith in. Is it 
believing that Jesus is the Son of God, believing that he came in order to save, is that the case? Because I want to assure you that if he is under competition with many other things, or he is conspicuous by his absence, you are not yet a Christian. You don't don't yet have faith in him. You are not an overcomer. The world is instead the one overcoming you. Now, I'm not asking you to give the correct answer. As it is often in exams, you may not believe what your lecturer has been teaching you, but you know that if you don't put his answer here, you fail the exam. What I'm asking is, is this your faith? Is this your conviction? To borrow the words that we'll be singing in a few moments as we come to closing, that living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely and forever. And one day, he is coming. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. He, 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 is that you? Do you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, Lord, thank you that you have saved me from my sins. Thank you that you are my savior. Thank you that you are coming. Well, that's what we will have right through this passage. It will not be about God testifying about all kinds of different details. It's not about the Spirit testifying about all kinds of different details. It is about the testimony concerning God the Son. And our hearts should be saying, yea and amen to that reality. That's the proof of salvation. Very well then. John, in speaking about the one who has come, which is Jesus Christ, says that he came by water and blood. That's what it says here. He came by water and blood. What does he mean by that? I want to suggest to you that he is referring to the beginning and the end of Jesus' public ministry. The beginning and the end of his public ministry. We shall see that in a moment. And what he is saying is that something unique, something happened there that invariably convinces us that this person was no mere human being. He was the son of God. How did Jesus commence his public ministry? He began with his baptism. Let's quickly go there. The book of Matthew is the one I'll use. Uh, Matthew 3, and then later on we'll go to Matthew 27. Matthew 3. I commenced reading with verse 
13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, referring to John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I can almost bet that nobody heard those words on the day of your baptism. You went into the water and came out. God was quiet. But on this occasion, this was no mere human being being baptized. This was the very son of God. And consequently, at the commencement of this wonderful, unique ministry that whose, whose impact has reached even us today, God the Father spoke. God the Son being baptized, God the Holy Spirit descending visibly like a dove settling upon him. Surely any individuals who would have been witnessing that occasion would have gone, wow! There is a testimony here that we have never heard before. There is a witness here that we've never heard before, especially this voice that is heard from heaven itself. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What about the end of his public ministry? Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Clearly, the Lord Jesus was in excruciating pain. And a lot of what you see here is the, the, the agony of, of carrying the sin of a world upon his shoulders. And consequently, the punishment that attended that sin coming upon him. And so, I could have begun from verse 45 at the sixth hour and so on. Darkness came over the entire land until the ninth hour. Already there, you are beginning to realize that this is no 
ordinary mortal hanging on a cross when for three solid hours in broad daylight suddenly the sun refuses to shine. But let me skip over to verse 51. We are told there that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, I love the details. You know, if, if this curtain tears from bottom to top, you can suspect that there are some guys behind there somewhere who've sort of torn it. But when it tears from the rails there to the bottom, you begin to realize this ain't some people playing a trick here. Because who would be there? The Bibles make it clear. The message was pretty clear. That God was saying you no longer need to go into a holy of holies. Because the final sacrifice has been made by the Son of God himself. And therefore, he will now bring his own blood into the real holy of holies, into heaven itself, having procured eternal salvation for you all. Well, as if that's not enough, we read the second part of verse 51, and the earth shook and rocks were split. Some earthquake took as if that's not enough. We are told in verse 52, the tombs were also open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, if you were there and you saw all this, would you blame this soldier in the next verse? for saying what he said? Listen to verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Again, there was the wow. This is no ordinary death. This is what happens regularly when the Roman government crucify a criminal. This is no mere man dying here. This is a unique child of God, a unique son of God. Jesus went out of his public ministry with yet another clear testimony of who he was, the son of God of God. And friends, what we are being told is this. If you don't believe this, you will perish. You will perish in your sins. He was not merely a good teacher giving us good moral lessons. This is 
God the Son, who enters upon a public ministry with a clear witness and closes his public ministry with a very clear witness. He came by water and by blood, he is telling us. Do you believe that? Do you recognize that the one we speak about here, again and again, week after week, year in and year out, Jesus, that he is indeed the very son of God? And I always like putting it the other way around for the sake of Jehovah's Witnesses, that he is God the Son, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. So when you speak about the Son of God, we're not speaking in terms of the way we ourselves are sons of God. No. He is the Son of God, the only one who has no beginning and no end. The one who was not just born, but he came into the world. He came into the world from, as it were, heaven itself. Do you believe this? Do you? John seems to be emphatic. Let's go back there. That we should believe not only that he came by water, but also by blood. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. It's fairly easy to get a little confused about what on earth he is talking about and consequently allow me to just give you a quick background. At the time that John was writing, the Christian church had already begun to suffer from heretical teachings. So heretical teachings did not begin long after the apostles were buried. Heretical teachings began even before the last of the apostles was buried. And a lot of the wrong teachings revolved around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of them, which was known as the Gnostic heresy, is one that was basically saying that Jesus was an ordinary human being. was an ordinary human being. What enabled him to do the kind of miracles that he was doing in his life was that at his baptism, God came and dwelt within him. And so he was able to do all those things that he was doing, that now there was the human and the divine combined into one. However, God cannot die. And therefore, just before his crucifixion, the divine left him. And so, on the cross was a mere human being. And that's why he died. 
Now, if you can, from that background, come into this text, you begin to understand what John is saying. He's arguing out the fact that it was not simply at the inauguration of his ministry that we are looking at the Son of God it is also in that bloody sacrifice on the cross that we are looking at the Son of God. God the Son paid the price for our sins on that cross. That's the point that he is making. He is literally, therefore, arguing against the wrong teaching that was already beginning to rock the church concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in fact, even when he was born, he was already God. All the way to his ascension, he was God. That's who he is. As the hymn goes, tis the Lord, a wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Whether it is in Bethlehem's crib or hanging on a cross, it is the Lord, a wondrous story. It is the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. What would I like to say over this point? It is simply this, brethren, that we must never subtract from the witness of Scripture concerning God's own Son. Even if it is for the sake of unity, we must never do so. Because the moment you subtract from Christ, you no longer have the real Christ. You no longer have the witness of God himself, which has been made plain in the scriptures. Therefore, you do not have his salvation. Because not just a savior in history, he's a savior today. We call upon him to save us. Who are you calling upon to save you when you have subtracted and subtracted and subtracted from the glory of his being? Who are you calling to save you? We must accept it all. And mind you, that's what John is now going to be saying in verse 6. Verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12. He's basically saying, accept the witness. Accept the witness. Accept the witness of God. Don't try and remove some things. It's Jesus that you have believed in. He's the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He is God, the Son. And that's the reason why in trusting in him, you will certainly have the victory. And it is after saying all that, 
that he now concludes with the words in verse 13 of First uh, John chapter 5, the famous words of verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, brethren, let me hurry on to close. And I want to close with these words. That there is sufficient witness in the historical accounts in scripture for us to believe that we have believed in God. We believe in God the Father, in God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit. But more specifically, that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's enough evidence. There's evidence at the commencement of his ministry, the inauguration of it, and there's evidence at the end of his ministry, his consummation. There is ample evidence, even at those two points, that we have believed in the one who is the creator of the universe, this great, glorious universe, the governor of all history, in absolute control of everything, is the one who came and paid the price for our sin. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely, forever. One day, he's coming. Oh, glorious day. May that be your song. Today, may that be your song forever. Amen.